Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. What I love about Shopify is basically how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. I know we use Shopify here at Betches. And honestly, anyone with any kind of business could really benefit from Shopify. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash betches, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash betches now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash betches. Just a reminder that Diet Starts Tomorrow is a podcast for entertainment purposes only. It is not a medical podcast and does not constitute medical advice. Always seek the advice of a physician or a health professional. Betches Media presents Diet Starts Tomorrow. I stand behind my decision to avoid salad and other disgusting things. With me, Remy Casimir. I'll have what she's having. And me, Emily Lubin. Remember, choose like you have a secret. We're here to amuse your boosh. Hello, and welcome to Diet Starts Tomorrow. I'm Emily. And I'm Remy, and I am back, and I was loving all of the duos. Emily, your chemistry with everyone was fantastic. Thank you. Today's chemistry is going to be amazing because we have a dynamic duo. We are joined by a health and wellness power couple, physician and endocrinologist, Dr. Gregory Dodell, and psychologist and author of The Diet-Free Revolution, Dr. Alexis Connison. Welcome to DST, you guys. Welcome. Thank Thank you for having us. We're so excited to be here. Thank you. We're so excited to have you both. Um, We've been following you guys individually. And honestly, you two together, power couple is the perfect term for it because you got the you got the psychology and you got the medicine and then put together. We have a revolution. And they've never done a podcast together before. Ooh, that is true. This is a revolutionary episode. Um, so first off, Alexis, can you tell us about your work and your background and how you got into all of this? Sure. So, I mean, like so many of us, I was raised in diet culture mm-hmm. and struggled with kind of being, you know, on the wagon, off the wagon, that whole mentality for so much of my life and really felt like when, you know, I wanted to go to school to be a psychologist with the intention of helping people lose weight because I thought that was like the path to happiness and everything Mm. good in life. Um, So thankfully, pretty early in my career, when um, I finished graduate school, I started getting exposed to weight inclusive ways of approaching health and wellness and, and mental well-being as well. And it was just transformative. It really was like a game changer for me personally. It changed the way that I practice with clients. And I'm so grateful for finding that every day. Yeah. You mentioned on a podcast that you did your first juice cleanse at eight years old. Yep. How? 
Like yeah. how is that so early? Yeah. Well, um, V8 juice, because that's what I had access to uh-huh. as an eight year old. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I grew up in a home where there was just so much dieting, like it was the norm. And, um, you know, almost like as early as I could read, our living room was lined with like bookshelves with all of my mom's diet books. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I felt like, you know, I think at that time it was so much more about wanting to be like a grown up and this being what mature yeah adults do mm-hmm. is diet and go on juice cleanses. Cause I had seen my mom do that for so much of my life. Um, so it was kind of more about that than like wanting to change my body, but it was one of the first experiences I remember of really feeling preoccupied with food because I, you know, restricted that day. I went off to school with like, you know, my V8 juice or whatever. Did you and, have them in the cans? Yep. The cans. Oh, I remember those. Yep. 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 The tiny little mini cans. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> and I remember going to sleep and feeling so intensely hungry and like dreaming of what I was going to eat the next day. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I really remember feeling, you know, thinking about food in that way um, more than just, you know, hopefully for kids, it's like you're hungry, you eat, you move on with your life. But things things shifted for me then. Mm-hmm. And you also did a lot of work and we don't really say this word a lot, but obesity mm-hmm. research. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So um, like I said, you know, I really saw the direction of my career being about weight loss and weight management. So I got my doctoral degree in psychology and I did my dissertation research about people who get bariatric surgery. I kind of set off for this path in quote unquote obesity research. So I was working in a obesity research center. Actually, Greg and I crossed paths there because he was doing his residency in the same area. It's not how we met, but it was a funny intersection. Oh, we potentially and, got engaged at that time. Yeah, I think we around did then. right around then. It was around that time that I started. I was like, maybe had been working in the obesity research, and I'm using air quotes, but people probably can't see that yeah, on yeah. the podcast. <laughs> but that word, that'd obviously, be lot, that'd be a lot of talent. Yeah, that that, that word is really problematic because mm-hmm. um, it pathologizes certain body sizes, but. That's what I was working in at the time. And thankfully, like a few years into doing that research, I started getting exposed to weight inclusive approaches to health. And it just made so much sense because so much of what I was seeing in the research was that these things don't work. But it was being approached from this other angle of like, you know, you know, the researchers would look at why did only, you know, 2% of participants in the study lose weight and, you know, kind of what's wrong with the participants and how can we like make them more quote unquote compliant Mm -hmm. with our interventions. But when I shifted gears and started seeing things through the perspective of weight inclusivity, I was just like, oh no, it's not like how to make the better diet. It's the whole paradigm is flawed. So that shift was really huge and an important one for me. And it just like lined up with kind of what I was already seeing in the research. Yeah, no, I, I love that you said that because we, we've we had a lot of professionals come on and explain the mind-body connection and how mental health is so closely related to physical health. But how have you seen that play out in patients as a psychologist? Well, I mean, I think that when people are stuck in that diet mentality, it takes such an impact on our self-esteem and sense of self-worth because we're told over and over again that there's something wrong with us, that our body is bad and that we're bad because we can't make our body look a certain way. So there can be this really pervasive shame and we all know- It's your fault. Exactly. It's your fault. You're not doing it good enough. We feel like we're the only one who's failing, right? Like that there's this prescription that everyone else is able to follow and do it right and like- we're just somehow broken that we can't seem to, you know, make our body look this way that 
that we're told. Um, so obviously that takes a huge impact on mental health. It increases risk for eating disorders and disordered eating. It increases risk for depression, anxiety, you know, all kinds of mental health issues. And if you even just think about it from the um, shame that it induces and the role that shame has in many, you know, mental health issues, it, I think it's really clear just it how it impacts that, your health. Yeah. 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 And Gregory, first off, you're an endocrinologist. Can you explain what that is? Because we have not had one on yet. Well, happy to be the first. Hooray. Alongside uh, my talented and brilliant wife, Alexis. Uh, so endocrinology <laughs> is the study of hormones, basically. It's how the body works. I like to say endocrinology is fascinating. I went into it because it affects the whole body, the mm -hmm. whole system. So we look at things like the thyroid, which affects energy and mood and metabolism. Diabetes is a big part of my practice. Obviously, blood sugar is important. Things like cortisol, things like how sleep affects our hormones. So really everything in the body from a biased perspective is about the endocrine hormone system. And I feel like we're hearing more about this stuff just via social media, like now more than ever. I see videos all the time from people who claim to have healed their hormones or, mm. um, you know, it a lot related to like hormone regulation, but they claim to have done it by eating certain things. Is there any truth to that? Not really. I mean, there's a lot of people that come in asking about, like, should I be gluten-free and dairy-free? Will that help support my thyroid? Will that help support my blood sugar? Even people wearing glucose monitors, yeah, you know, I've don't have that. diabetes. You know, so I think that's a lot of wellness mm. culture. So we, in academic endocrinology, try and steer clear of that and discourage people from doing that because without evidence and people spending tons of their hard-earned money on those things that aren't substantiated, doesn't make a lot of sense. You I know, love hear that a lot wellness about, like, culture is yeah, unwell. Well, yeah, totally. <laughs> like adrenal fatigue, all these kind of buzzwords that you hear about. There's not a lot of evidence behind that. Mm. And so you do diabetes, thyroid stuff, PCOS. Osteoporosis. Osteoporosis. Thin bones. Okay. Uh, pituitary, which is a gland in the brain that regulates all the hormones. Really, mm -hmm. it's the master gland. And you minored in psych initially. Yeah which I think is- Did sick. your research. Just a little. Yeah. <laughs> what was it that made you go into endocrinology versus psych or pediatrics, which you wanted to do since you were a child? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Crushing it. Um, so pediatric, I, I love kids, always have. Um, always thought I wanted to be a pediatrician, but then being in medical school and doing those rotations and seeing sick kids in the hospital was just heartbreaking tough, for me, yeah. really hard. And then being in the office practice with like just giving vaccines and like mostly about the parents just wasn't doing it for me. Um, and then I had a great endocrinology professor, an adult endocrinologist who ran up and down not the stairs. Not a child. No, not a child, <laughs> totally an adult, ran up and down the stairs and was like so enthusiastic about endocrinology. And then as I said, it just affected every system. And I was like, this is what I want to do. Cause I was always interested in nutrition and balancing things and, even had some interest in Eastern medicine at one time. So it just felt like the right. And you can treat all ages. Uh, I only do adults. What type of patients do you typically see? Do you see a lot of patients in larger bodies or is it a true mix? It's a true mix. And that's why this perspective and this weight inclusive care makes so much sense to me, even though it took me like 10 years of Alexis at home being like, uh, this is really how you should be practicing. And so she's the one who got you into it. Totally. A thousand percent. There's no, no way it would be <laughs> doing what I'm doing without her. I mean, yeah. so for eight, nine years, she was like trying to educate me on this. And I was so wrapped up in just traditional medicine and like the emails I get daily about like, you know, if you're not discussing people's weight, you're not practicing good medicine. 
then I read like the draft of her book and it just like clicked because all the mm -hmm. research and all this stuff. And then I jumped on social media and started following, you know, people that were talking this way. And I was like, this really makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then seeing the patients come in the door and trying to shift my perspective and hearing about the trauma that they had gone through and avoiding healthcare because of these discussions, it just made so much sense. So yes, I see people across the size spectrum, which just tells me that people across the size spectrum have diabetes, they have thyroid problems, they have high cholesterol, all mm -hmm. those things. Yeah, well, you know, you actually tweeted something that I thought was really interesting, and I, I didn't know about this study. Um, it said research from over 2 million people demonstrated an increased prevalence of diabetes from 2015 to 2020 amongst lean individuals, BMI less than 25, and no change amongst those at higher BMIs. Diabetes occurs across the size spectrum. So why do you think it is that we've been told over and over again that being fat will lead to diabetes mm. when the research shows that that's not the number one factor? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of issues in research looking at what we call correlations rather than causation, meaning associations and not controlling for other factors like weight discrimination, weight stigma, how people are moving, what they're eating, access to care. So so many variables that they don't talk about in research with regard to things like diabetes and heart disease. So it's kind of like cherry pick selection bias and not looking at all the different sizes and yeah. In a population. And similarly, when people's health starts to improve, people will go, oh, it was the weight loss instead of being like, no, the weight loss was like a byproduct mm -hmm. totally. of them trying to do other things to get them healthier. Right. And I think what you were saying, too, is you make people more comfortable now in your office where they would be avoiding the doctor if they immediately make you get on a scale, if they don't have equipment that fits them sometimes. Like I think you were talking about the blood pressure totally. monitor in, in one yes. place or just having chairs that don't fit people. They're like, I'm not going to go to that doctor again. Or if the doctor says something that just like, oh, you're you're blaming me for right. my current health situation instead of being like, OK, this is where you are now. Let's let's treat you. Right. So then if you look at outcomes like whatever, colon cancer, uterine cancer, diabetes, high, any outcome of a chronic condition that someone didn't get screened for the same way, you know, someone maybe in a smaller body would have because they didn't avoid going to a doctor. Mm -hmm. You're not comparing apples to apples. You're basically, mm -hmm. you know, that person didn't get screened because of previous experiences. So you can't really say, you know, the instance is higher because of their body size. Maybe they just didn't go for checkups and get yeah. picked up right. earlier. Right. Well, and also that's got to be quite stressful to worry about whether your care is gonna be sufficient, whether you're gonna be judged or even believed for certain conditions that you may have. And since you work in the realm of cortisol, <laughs> you probably can speak to this, but I, I assume that going through that everyday stress of not knowing if you're gonna even be believed, yeah. that can make you stressed out and that could raise your cortisol too. Absolutely. It feels like cat food has been the same forever. Smelly, boring, made of mystery ingredients. That's why you've got to try Smalls. 
Small's cat food is protein-packed recipes made with preservative-free ingredients you'd find in your own fridge. And it's delivered right to your door. Make the switch from kibble and give your cat a meal they'll love. We actually sent some Small's to my friend in Brooklyn who is fostering kittens, and they took to it right away. It is delicious, it is nutritious, it is easy to serve. Yum, 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 eat it up. Your cute kitty is descended from ferocious desert cats who hunted live prey. Even if your cat prefers to nap all day, they still need fresh, protein-packed meals for a balanced and healthy diet. Other brands fill their food with mysterious meat byproducts, artificial flavoring, and preservatives with names I don't even want to try to pronounce. After switching it up to Smalls, 90% of cat owners reported overall health improvements. That's major. The team at Smalls is so confident your cat will love their product that you can try it risk-free. That means they'll completely refund you if your picky cat won't eat their food. Now is the time to make the switch to Smalls. Head to smalls.com slash DST and use promo code DST at checkout for 50% off your first order, plus free shipping. That's the best offer you'll find, but you have to use my code DST for 50% off your first order. One last time, that's promo code DST for 50% off your first order, plus free shipping. Warmer weather is finally back. After so many cold months, it's nice to get outside and soak up the sun, but the springtime always brings those unwanted guests, pollen and seasonal allergies. April showers bring spring flowers and sniffly noses and stuffed up sinuses. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. I suffer from seasonal allergies. I just had them hit the other day. I couldn't breathe through my nose at all. And I popped a Claritin and it was like night and day. I'm a huge fan of Claritin. I use it on the regular and it always helps when we're making that transition from winter to spring, which is when my allergies flare up. Mainly it's my sinuses that get so clogged and the Claritin just clears it right up. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients and just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy throat and nose, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live your life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Alexis, can you tell us about the look ahead study? The look ahead study is interesting because it's one of the studies that um, kind of the obesity researchers use. Air quotes again. Yeah, air quotes. that, that they use to really try to convince people that losing weight is possible and, you know, sustainable. But when you look at the the study results, you know, it's pretty dismal, mm. um, you know, and it's interesting because a lot of these studies, it's like they change the benchmark. Like, you know, it'll be, I, for, I, ha- I would have to review that study in more detail, but like, you know, it'd be, we're looking for people to lose, you know, 20% of their body weight. And then all of a sudden, you know, the study gets revised. Now we're looking for people to lose 10% of their mm-hmm. body weight for it to be successful. So, you know, when you really look at the results of the study, it's not at all what's, you know, kind of publicized as the success story of the study. And um, these are people, by the way, in the study who had access to things that like normal people do not have access to. Right. Like the researchers bought these people gym equipment if they were having trouble like getting to the gym. They 
paid for them to have, you know, diet supplements and like shakes and diet foods and things. Food too. Um, yeah. And they were prescribed weight loss medications in a lot of the the instances. So, I mean, I think it speaks to the low bar of success in some of these studies and how also the data gets like misrepresented on when it gets translated into, you know, kind of mass to the mass public. I think important thing to note on the studies is that a lot of times the endpoints, they're short-term studies. So like could mm-hmm. be two, three years. And that's a lot of times when you see people start gaining weight back or like whatever the outcomes are, that's kind of when they start changing and the studies are stopped. Mm-hmm. So you don't okay. really get that tail end effect yeah. of like that J-shaped curve where like it kind of returns to the baseline. And that's what happened to look at. So I think it was like four or five years you started seeing the mm-hmm. weight go up and it was actually stopped. You, I think, mentioned on something that it was like, yeah, you never see... Uh, the biggest loser, where are they now? Right, right. Well, and I mean, I think that they want these weight loss studies are trying to capture that really limited amount of time that people are quote unquote successful in losing weight. And if you look at, you know, now the GLP-1 studies on like Ozempic, Wigovi, um, Manjaro, these kinds of things, it's the same thing. And a lot of these studies are just looking at data, you know, within the first six months or maybe a year, but I think some of them even only go six months out. Mm. And yet they're recommending that people, you know, stay on these medications for the rest of their lives. Yeah. How do you feel as a weight inclusive doctor, like prescribing these medications to people? Because there are people who fought like PCOS and diabetes. This is who those medications are for. Totally. I've been prescribing these medications for a decade at least. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in fellowship, you know, which fellowship is like where I do my endocrinology advanced training. And we were using the medications long before they were ever used for weight loss. And basically what people started seeing is people are losing weight. So let's market as that. Let's get FDA approval for that. So I, I continue to prescribe them for people that have metabolic reasons to do so but it's really hard going throughout my day and having people come in essentially asking for these and having to say, Mm -hmm. look, there's a lot of side effects to these, you know, from what I can see in their blood tests and everything, you're young, you're healthy. Even if you're older and you're healthy, I don't see a reason to put you on these medications unless, you know, it's something you want to take the rest of your life, which I don't think you need to do. Um, But these are hard discussions because I get it. There's so much pressure on people, you know, their friends, their family, everyone's, on them, people are telling them they should take them. So it's they're becoming tough discussions. But and we're, they're we're so closely it. associated with weight loss now that if you're prescribing it to somebody, they're they they might think your intention is weight loss. Yeah, no, patients of mine that take it for diabetes or PCOS or whatever reason, I think feel some stigma and some sense of taking them because mm-hmm. you know they have to rationalize why they're taking them. And even when I send the prescription to the pharmacy. I have to put the diagnosis code of diabetes because there's a shortage of the medications. So I have patients that have been unable to get the medications who had very well controlled blood sugars because there's so many people taking these medications. Are there things that you'll say to them before putting them on just to like assuage them a bit being like, Hey, this is for your health. Like the weight loss is a side effect. Yeah, totally. I mean, I I do say I'm not prescribing this medication for weight loss. I'm prescribing it because I think it's going to help your blood sugar get well controlled. And that to me is the objective. Even if your weight stays the same, I always like to say people have uncontrolled diabetes lose a lot of weight Mm. because they're losing fat and muscle. You know, so when people come in, they've lost a ton of weight and their blood sugars through the roof, 
you know, they have all these cardiovascular risk factors, kidney risk factors. When you put on medication, they gain the weight back. Mm. Um, so that's always an interesting point to make. And am I correct that the difference between if a semaglutide is given for weight loss versus diabetes is the dose, correct? Like, isn't it a higher dose if you're prescribing it for weight loss? It starts off around the same dose, but over time, the dose can be higher for weight loss. Is that because you need to keep increasing it, like to maintain the weight loss? It seems like that. Okay. Correct, because people's weight plateaus, so then it becomes the next and next and next. It reminds me of like the opioids, really, like yeah, the dope sick. Because yeah. like what happened in dope sick and all these you know things that we saw is they kept coming out with higher and higher doses and people were getting more and more addicted than they build the tolerance. And yeah, good news, now there's 48 milligrams, like mm -hmm. whatever. And that's kind of what we're seeing. You know, people's weight plateaus. At what point do you just say, all right, you know, that's it. This is my set point. This is my set point. Yeah. Or, you know, they go off it after a year or two. And a study just came out showing that when people stopped it, they gained back 14% of the weight that they lost pretty mm -hmm. quickly. Okay. Okay. So what are the things that happen on them that are not good? I can't, what is the word for that? Side effects? Side effects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was thinking like gastroparesis, but yeah, side effects. I <laughs> guess is what side effects and are they worth it for people who need the drug? So the side effects are generally it slows down what we call gastric emptying. So it slows down digestion. So it can cause a lot of nausea. It can cause constipation. It can cause gallstones in people because when whenever mm. there's rapid weight loss, people can get gallstones. Um, is it worth it? I mean, I think that if people are having a lot of side effects, for whatever reason they're taking it, you have to address that and I, I would put them on something else. I mean, there's no reason to like go through life with all the side effects just to have a Permanently good constipated. Yeah, it's yeah. miserable. And even anesthesiologists, if someone's going for surgery, because they have so much undigested food in their stomach, you have to stop the medication one to two weeks before surgery no. because the anesthesia, you know how you are not supposed to eat the day before surgery yeah, yeah, yeah. because you don't want food in your stomach and yeah. then you go into anesthesia and you aspirate. Yeah, you can only have green jello. Yeah, exactly. Or red maybe, I don't know. But um, I think red they tell you not to. Oh, or am I wrong right. about that? No, maybe it, you're right. Really? Well, because it could be blood. Like if you're, oh, you know, there you go. Good at point. least that's Interesting. what I thought. I'm not an anesthesiologist, but that makes sense. <laughs> um, I am. You so. are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, you're supposed to stop the medication a week or two before because of so much undigested food. So that tells you like people are walking around like that constipated. So and backed up. Yeah. Oh, that's so nuts. But I don't, I mean, I don't know. I could be wrong. I'm like a sample of one, but I don't see as many side effects almost. And like people that are taking it for diabetes and also the weight loss seems less. And uh -huh. people that take it for diabetes. I don't know why. With all of the Ozempic discussions that I've heard, um, I have heard a lot of people say that they feel a sense of relief. And these are people in larger bodies that they feel a sense of relief with obesity being classified as a chronic illness and being able to be prescribed something for weight loss, like because they're treating a chronic illness. How do you guys feel about that? Because I personally don't think that obesity should be classified as a chronic illness, but it seems like there are some people who feel a lot of freedom with that being categorized that way. What do you guys think about it? I mean, I think that I'm not one to tell anyone else how to feel about their body or how they want to see, you know, kind of classify their body with the terms obesity or not. Um, but I think so often what people are seeking relief from is weight stigma. Mm. You know, fat bodies are 
bad because our society tells us they are. And, you know, so many people talk about, you know, how difficult it is not to live in a fat body, but to live in a society that, that doesn't views, like them. Exactly. Or views it as your fault. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so people are, you know, subjected to discrimination in so many different forms and, you know, just kind of going through the day to day things in a world that doesn't fit your body where, you know, there may not be seats that accommodate your size, that um, you're getting dirty looks, people, you know, yell things on this. Like, it's just, of course, people are seeking to lose weight or to try to, you know, take a medication or have surgery or whatever to try to escape that mm -hmm. because it's it's really hard. Yeah. And then if it's said that this is a disease, then again, that takes the shame and the blame away from it because it's like, oh, that this is but that shame and blame shouldn't exist in the first place. Yeah. And I think it's mixed because I think that the, you know, I, I know I've talked to people who feel that the idea of labeling their body as a disease inherently puts the blame and shame on it, mm -hmm. right? Because it's saying there's something wrong with your body. Your body's an illness. You can't be healthy if you're, you know, in this body size. But again, you know, there's nothing inherently unhealthy about a body size. So I think that like the idea of saying that, you know, you can't blame yourself for having this disease when it's, you could be otherwise completely healthy. And yeah. then to say you're have a disease just because of the size of your body is a little bit of a mind game as well. Totally. But I think, you know, like you said, there are some people who probably do find the idea validating and by no means am I, you know, someone to say that they shouldn't take comfort in that. But I know, you know, many people find that the term and the classification of obesity as a disease is stigmatizing. Yeah. Take comfort where you can get it, but also it's not such a nice thing to say. This episode is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always find the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you, Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for this season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription clothing rental service. For just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles each month. Access to thousands of styles from more than 400 brands. There are no fees, late fees, damage fees, or fees to pause or cancel. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X as well as petite and maternity. And you always have the option to buy what you love. I love Newly. I've rented so many cute things from there, and I've even made a few purchases from there. And they're always spot on. They have so many brands that I honestly could never afford in real life. So it's great to be able to rent them. Newly is a great value at $98 a month for any six styles. But right now, you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code DST20. Just go to Newly, that's N U U L Y.com, and enter the code DST20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's, with code DST20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. 
Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Before we get more into the weeds of medicine, how did you guys meet? Because I'm very curious now. Oh, <laughs> I was going to say, should we say the real story? Because yeah, the real story. <laughs> well, you have to now. We have a cover story too. Uh, no, cover both. Story. we met in. They were spies. <laughs> <laughs> we met in the when was it? Early 2000s when Kabbalah was very popular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh hell yeah! Little red string yep. around the wrist. Yep. Okay. Yep. And we met yards. in a Kabbalah class. <laughs> cool. That is that's 2004. Iconic. What's the cover story? I don't know the cover story. What is the cover story? That we met at a bar. Oh, she has made that. <laughs> up. I didn't know that was a cover or story. Or JD, but the, I think the like bar was called Kabbalah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When we first met, like online dating was like was like what you tried to cover up too. Yeah. There was like yeah. Friendster at that point, I think. Yeah, no, there I, I matched with a guy on J Date once and it was so like not done. And I saw him at a bar once and I ran over and I covered his mouth. I said, Don't tell anything. <laughs> About J Date? Yeah, that that I'm on this thing. Oh my God. I used to catfish people on J Date. Emily <laughs> catfishing is a pastime of mine, but I'm reformed. I don't do it anymore. Don't worry, guys. She's in recovery from catfishing. Yes. Can you tell me about the process of you explaining weight-inclusive medicine to Gregory? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. Because like I said, when we first, not when we first met, but when we were like earlier in our relationship, I guess like around the time that we got married, we were both working at the Obesity Research Center. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we were both really kind of had a sh- more of a shared perspective of the what I would say, especially at that time, was the mainstream medical model, you know, that saw, you know, weight loss as the path to health and well-being and mm-hmm. whatnot. Um, but then as I started to learn more about weight inclusivity and weight inclusive approaches to health, I started, you know, talking to him about it. But like he was not on board at first because him more so than me was much more inundated into that medical model. Right. Like I was a psychologist. I didn't go to medical school. I wasn't getting kind mm-hmm. of those top down messages. So it was really like a large number of conversations over the course of probably almost 10 years where I would be like sharing research studies. We'd kind of go back and forth on things and he would kind of get like midway, like he'd have like one foot in the door and be like, okay, you're right. You know, I shouldn't be telling people to lose weight. I'm just going to tell people to eat healthier. Mm. And I was like, "Mm, that's not exactly it. (laughs) Um, So I think he spent like a little while kind of in that middle ground. Yeah. And then I think it was like when I was writing my book and it was such a intensive, immersive process writing the book. And I had him read one of the chapters on weight. I think it was on weight stigma in medicine and about like health and weight. And I think there was something he says about just like seeing it all kind of like coalesce together in that way with all of the research and the data in there that that really did create a shift. And it was like something, you know, clicked and and here we are. It, mm-hmm. it was that, but it was also in the book, she has these characters um, and she tells their stories of like what it's like to be, you know, living whatever experiences they're having, which are fictionalized, but a conglomeration of like different people she's seen over the years. And that just like really was like, 
whoa, like it resonated mm. with me. Like it just clicked. And then I started like trying to talk to patients this way and whatever. And just, I saw it. And I remember one patient was like, you're like the fifth endocrinologist I've seen. Like I've sat in my car, like crying after every appointment. Like they just mm. like assume all this stuff about me and like this and that. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. You know? Like, and, oh my God, my yeah. better half is bettering me. Yeah, I mean, that's in incredible. In so many ways, but yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, that makes so much sense though, because when you go see a medical doctor, it's such a different experience from going to see a psychologist. Like you, with a psychologist, you just get in the weeds of how you're feeling and everything. And you don't always do that with um, any kind of doctor other than a psychologist, really. So that must have been really refreshing for your patients to actually be able to express how they were feeling to you. Yeah. And I mean, it meant the medical system is not great as we know. And then we got 15 minutes with these patients Yeah, and so many assumptions can be made about a lot of things and especially like what people's behaviors are. And, you know, I think a lot of people like walk into a doctor's office and they, you know, the doctor takes a look at them and just says, you should really diet and exercise or like whatever the like mm -hmm. catchphrase is like as they're like walking out the door, which is just like ridiculous. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's what happens. You know, people take shortcuts in medicine and, you know, try and make, you know, quick snap judgments to like get through their day. You're seeing 20, 25 people. While they're walking out, change yeah. your whole life. Bye. Yeah, exactly. Totally. <laughs> oh, quit smoking too. Yeah. I don't smoke. Well, whatever. You know? <laughs> whatever bad things yeah, you do. Yeah, just stop it all and get some sleep too. Can we go back for a second? Because you have a lot of studies in your book. The look ahead study, was that the one where they made people stay in the hospital? It was a study where they were looking at what happens when you kind of force people to lose a dramatic amount of weight. Mm -hmm. And the best way that they could do that was to like have these people stay in the hospital so they could control everything. And first of all, I think it's fascinating because some of these people stayed in this hospital in the study. I think the longest participant was there for almost a year living wow. in the hospital. Yeah. So I think you have to also like hold in mind how desperate not sick from anything. Yeah. Not sick. These yeah. are healthy, healthy yeah. people who were kind of lured in with the promise of losing weight. Mm -hmm. And you have to think about how desperate people are, right? To stop their lives and move into a hospital for like many months, if not Wear a an year. Ugly gown yeah. for a year. Yeah. They were like measured and I think this like body composition thing. I'd have to refresh my memory, but I think they were given like a liquid diet for really extensive periods of time. But like how unrealistic is that to like, no one lives like Nobody that. Nobody lives like well, that. They had yeah. to basically have them, you know, in this hospital in the controlled setting to make sure that they were following this plan because anyone out in like the real world would be like, screw this. Mm, I'm yeah. going to have a, whatever, something to eat. Um, but what they found in that study, which was really interesting, they were looking now, remembering them at the metabolic changes that happen when people lose weight. And what they find is that over time, when people lose weight, their body starts to fight back. So this was really the study that um, established the idea of set point weight, mm -hmm. which is that your body has a comfortable weight that it wants to maintain and protect. And if you are below that, your body is giving you all kinds of different signals to try to encourage you to gain back that weight, right? Because our body, like our appetite regulation system is in a very primal part of our brain and it's responsible for our survival, right? So if we lose too much weight back in the times of like, you know, 
famine and when we were hunter, hunting, yeah, hunter yeah. gatherers, like that was incredibly, incredibly dangerous. So when we start to lose weight and when we get below this set point weight, that survival instinct kicks in where our body thinks, oh my gosh, something's really wrong. Like we're not getting enough food. We must be in a starvation. I'm losing weight. Are we dying? Like what is happening? <laughs> Are we dying? Yeah. So it starts to send out all of well, these. Well, yeah, really- I've been in a hospital for a year, so right. I think I'm yeah. dying. <laughs> but so your body starts to send out, you know, really strong signals trying to encourage you to eat. Food becomes very rewarding. You're thinking about food all the time. Um, your metabolism slows down so that when you do eat food, your body's like holding on to it more. So it, it's just, you know, I, I think that study is really interesting because so many people blame themselves when they can't lose weight. And actually, like our body is hardwired to maintain a certain weight. And like, that's actually a good thing because it keeps us alive. Yeah. yeah. And weight loss coaches will refer to that very thing as a plateau that you just need to push through. Like, I've heard that so many times. You just need to push through this because your body's fighting back. But it's like, maybe that's a sign that we shouldn't be pushing yeah. anymore, you know? The craziest thing about that study, I think, was they paid the people in smaller bodies to do it. And then the people in larger bodies did it totally for free. Mm-hmm. No way. Yeah. 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 Because the the people, you know, what would the people in smaller Lauren's bodies losing her mind? <laughs> It was really, you know, it was really wild because the people in smaller bodies, why would they want to come and like stay? By the way, they were only in the hospital for like a few weeks or a mm-hmm. month or something, much shorter period of time. But why would they want to come and, and do that other than to, to make some money? But, mm-hmm. you know, for the people in larger bodies, like they were promised weight loss. So they were there. And that's the holy grail. Yeah. Allegedly. Interesting. Well, you mentioned metabolism. I'm sure you can speak to this as well. But we only really hear the word metabolism when at least I only hear it when people are talking about aging and, oh, my metabolism has slowed down. So I'm putting on weight. Or you hear about it from people who are like, I just have a fast metabolism. Sure. Yeah. I guess I haven't heard that since I was 12. But yeah, definitely. Definitely. I heard it back then a lot. But do we need to keep our metabolism in mind? And how does metabolic health apply to the average individual? It's not something to keep in check. It does change over the course of our lifetime. And I like to tell, you know, women who I'm seeing who are postmenopausal that the metabolism changes as we get older. So a lot of women after menopause can start gaining weight. And it's harder to lose weight. And so that's a lot of what I hear is, you know, can you check my thyroid? You know, this and that. And mm. it's the hormones. And should I go on estrogen and these things? And fat puts out estrogen. Mm. And so I think part of the reason why people can gain weight in menopause is because they're trying to hold on to estrogen. And it's protective because, you know, if people get older and they're they're frail or they're skinnier, their bone health is at risk and things like that. So there's reasons why our body changes over the course of our lifetime. So nothing that we can control. And I think, you know, in the end of the day, we have to do health promoting things that protect ourselves and our body. And our body really knows how to do those things that we just listen and not fight against it. I always heard about preventing osteoporosis. The way to do it is drink a lot of milk. Is that true? I mean, calcium is important, but I don't think you can prevent osteoporosis that way. Mm -hmm. But I think if people are lactose intolerant or don't have dairy in the diet, it is not great for the bones. And that is something that we ask. (laughs) Yeah. Because you do need calcium. What are other ways to get it? Just calcium pills? Yeah. Okay. So if people can't have dairy, then they should take a calcium supplement or get calcium in other ways, like green leafy vegetables. I think salmon has a lot of calcium. There's other foods, Mm -hmm. you know, to get it from. Are there workouts that can help your bone density? Weightlifting. Yeah, absolutely. 
you know, I say all the time. So by, by building up muscle, the bones have to hold on to that muscle. So strength training, resistance bands, any of those things are good. Yeah. Osteoporosis runs in my family. So that's, that's, that's why one you thing. lift all those weights. Yeah. Well, it's not, the and only, you love it. It's yeah. It's not the only reason, but it, it's, I think it's a really good reason for people to lift weights. Yeah. And yoga is actually great for osteoporosis. Oh, for real? I love. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I just took a yoga class over the weekend and I realized how unflexible I am, which is something I need to work on, but that's, it's a practice, not a perfect. It is. You're right. It is a practice, not a perfect. Shout out to Jessamine Stanley. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So like I said earlier, there are all these videos and all this information from individuals claiming to heal their hormones. And I'm so, so curious about this because I never understand what they mean when they say this. How do you know if your hormones need healing? I don't think they know either. (laughs) Let's just be honest. I think they're probably trying to sell a product or, you know, some concept of wellness or whatever. Um, you go to a doctor, if you have some symptoms and it seems reasonable to check things like your thyroid, your cortisol level, your blood sugar, those things, we can do it. But I don't think everyone needs like a hormone check necessarily. Mm-hmm. Just like mm-hmm. you don't need a metabolism check. But if you have some symptoms and it makes sense, then see an endocrinologist, someone who's board certified and knows what they're doing. Has anyone ever gone to both of you in tandem? Cause I know that it's like illegal for like a therapist to treat a bunch of people in the same family, but can somebody go to two doctors in the same family? I don't think there's any ethical prohibitions against that. Mm-hmm. We do share some clients, you know, in part because he's like the only weight inclusive endocrinologist mm-hmm. that I know of in New York city. So, you know, if I need to refer people, I do let them know, you know, that there's a relationship there, but, um, there's not a lot of choices for people. Yeah. And how do you know when it's time to go to an endocrinologist? So I think a good way is see your primary doctor, if you have one or a gynecologist, whoever you see and discuss what symptoms you're having and let them talk it out, let them do some baseline screening and then get a referral. But this day and age with, you know, the internet and all these other things, WebMD, Google and things like that, if you think Mm -hmm. you have some symptoms, go get checked out and let them tell you if you should be there or not. Mm -hmm. With thyroid issues, I'm sure you're seeing people with lots of different bodies because there's hypo and hyper. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times people could be coming in losing too much weight and that you prescribe as well medication for. Yep. That was a really crazy sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so hyperthyroidism is overactive thyroid. So Mm -hmm. the thyroid puts out this hormone called T4 mostly, which is thyroxine, which affects energy and mood and metabolism digestion. So if someone's thyroid is overactive, they can have heart racing, Increased bowel movement frequency, heat intolerance, weight loss, muscle loss, all those things. So the treatment is to slow down the overproduction of thyroid hormone. Mm -hmm. I think something that we often forget about is that unexplained weight loss can be a very significant predictor of of health issues. Mm -hmm. And I think that in our culture, everyone's so obsessed with, you know, losing weight and, oh my gosh, this is great. You know, all of a sudden my weight is going down and oftentimes it's really far from healthy. 
Yeah. And that could keep somebody from seeing a doctor if something's going on because everybody's like, wow, you look like a new person. It's like, yeah, I, I have an illness. Yeah. <laughs> no, if they if you gain weight, they assume something's wrong. But if you're mm-hmm. losing a lot of weight, nobody assumes there's a problem because a lot of people in my family have thyroid issues. Do you know if anyone has ever gone from one to the other? Totally. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So a lot of times the endpoint of hyperthyroidism is actually underactive hypothyroidism because the thyroid kind of burns itself out from being overactive. Uh-huh. There's these autoimmune conditions, one's Graves disease, which is what stimulates the thyroid to be overactive. Sometimes it bounces itself out and goes into like remission and stays in a normal level, but sometimes they become underactive hypothyroid. Well, wow, the thyroid is sneaky. It is really. Does it go the other way ever? Um, it can less, less often. Okay. That's usually if they're on like medication, the medication just too much. Mm-hmm. Do you ever see anybody abusing these medications? Like do have people attempted to abuse the thyroid medications to manipulate weight loss or anything like that? I don't see people like overdosing on it, but I know people <laughs> definitely like to have their levels more towards the hyper end of the spectrum, not only for metabolism, but just for energy and mood and things like that. And I know a lot of psychiatrists prescribe thyroid hormone for depression, you know, if they, oh. because it can be like a mood booster. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. But you don't want to over. I had that. a doctor once put me on stuff because he was like, mm, you've gained a bit of weight. Maybe, maybe this is the thing. And I was like, we're just going to put me on this, not knowing a hundred percent. And at the time I was like, I'm down, you know, but now I'm like, that's kind of irresponsible. No. Yeah. Oh, we have so bit. much. We have so much trust in doctors. I think that, like most people, you know, um, if their doctor tells them something, that's what they're going to do, and mm-hmm. not realizing that they're trained from this very, you know, sometimes limited perspective. Yeah. Well, I know you guys are coming at this from the other end, but how do you advise people to advocate for themselves in a doctor's office? So I work with so many people who, you know, come to see me, and one of the things I talk to them about is, you know, their physical health, like are they going to see a doctor? And many people haven't been in so many years because their experiences have been traumatizing. They've had such negative experiences. That's just something that they try to avoid. So I think the first thing to try to do is to try to find a weight inclusive doctor. But as mm-hmm. we see, they're few and far between. So I think that, you know, we, there's, there's some, you know, um, lists kind of circulating, like oftentimes it's very grassroots. Like I often refer clients to like a list that's literally just someone, some people on social media compiled by asking their followers, like, Mm -hmm. who have you not had a really shitty experience with? (laughs) I mean, the bar is so low for looking for weight inclusive providers, but trying to find someone who's going to be, you know, less awful is a good starting point. But oftentimes people just have to- Less awful. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, the bar is like at the ground. Yeah. And then, you know, I think that oftentimes you just have to work with what you have, especially, you know, looking for a weight inclusive doctor, combining that with the limitations of like insurance coverage and geography and whatever else, you know, sometimes you just have to see the doctor that you have to see. And it can be really challenging because, you know, I think often we talk about advocating for yourself at the doctor's office and it, it, it certainly is possible. You know, I always remind people like, for example, it's not a requirement to, to be weighed at the doctor's office. If the doctor tries to tell you to get on the scale, you can just say like, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. If the 
doctor insists, you can just, you know, have them write in the chart, you know, client refused, I'm refusing that. But it changes the power dynamics. And I think that especially for people with less power in our society, it's really hard to go into a doctor's office and advocate for yourself because, you know, it gets into cultural issues too. I think like so many people are taught to respect doctors as an authority figure that you just do what the doctor tells you to do. So of course, you know, it's those of us who are most privileged who I think have an easier time advocating at the doctor's office. The people who have for sure less privilege are going to get like the shittiest care. Mm-hmm. Wow. it's <laughs> a lot to think about. You both have mentioned your book, which is The Diet-Free Revolution. You actually brought in books for us. I'm so Yay. excited to read it. Who is the book for and what inspired you to write it? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think the book is for a number of people. The book is dedicated to my daughters because I really, really have so much hope that they will get to grow up in a world that is not teaching people, especially women, to hate their bodies at eight years old. I mean, Mm -hmm. ironically- No diet books all over the house, just a diet-free book. Yeah, yeah. My oldest daughter is eight, which is the age I was when I went on my first diet Mm -hmm. juice cleanse. And the thought of her- you know, spending her time thinking about there being something wrong with her body is just, it's heartbreaking. It's yeah. its truly heartbreaking. So, you know, I write it for them to try to create a shift that, you know, I think that change happens by each person kind of changing their mindset and getting exposed to the message that, you know, we don't have to spend all of our time and energy trying to lose weight and they impact the people in their world who are around them. And I think that is really how like transformational change happens. But I also wrote the book for my clients. And when I first started working on the book, which was many, many years ago, um, because especially, you know, 10 years ago, like publishers were not jumping at the chance to, you know, publish a, you know, book about eating that did not promise weight loss, yeah. right? So I got like so many publishers who are like, this is great. We love that you're an expert in this area. Can you just like tell people that they're going to lose weight at the end of it? Totally. <laughs> it's like, you know, no, actually, that's like the whole point of the book. So at the time that I started working on it, there really wasn't anything out there that talked about mindful eating from a weight inclusive perspective. And still mindful eating is something that I think has been very co-opted by the diet industry and yeah. used, you know, like you hear that lingo in Weight Watchers and Noom and all of these diet companies. And it's the antithesis of what mindful eating is all about. So I was coming up with the obstacle that I was working with a lot of clients who were wanting to, you know, share what they were doing with like their parents or their family or their partner. And they would say, you know, can you recommend a book that really talks about this philosophy? And I was like, no, there's nothing out there. So yeah, thankfully that landscape has changed. And I think that there's a lot more talk about, you know, anti-diet approaches in the mainstream culture. This podcast is a great example. Thanks. But 10 years ago, (laughs) it was not there. Yeah, Yeah, I know. I mean, it's so much in such a short time, but I think it resonates with a lot of people because they're like, wait a second, I've been dieting for like 20 years and nothing has ever, quote, worked. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's because they don't work. Yeah. I mean, even Weight Watchers said it. Sorry, we've been telling you for years that that we can make you diet and it will work, but it doesn't work. And we're so sorry. And we're going to prescribe you a semi-glutide. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you.
I think another thing that we hear a lot, but I'm still struggling with the verbiage is most diets fail. But then that word fail is like, well, it working would have been a great success. Mm-hmm. So what is something that we can say? It's just most diets are ineffective or not I'm, meant to be. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so many layers to that, right? Because like the idea that the diets fail is premised on the idea that success would be losing weight, yeah. right? So that's like couched within this framework that we need to lose weight, that that is, you know, like that's the good thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in a way, I think to address that, it's like we, we need to just be stopping, you know, changing the really radically shifting the paradigm away from this idea that like we need to lose weight and that our bodies are bad and broken and need to be fixed in some way, you know, that we can start to regain a sense of trust in our body and find our way really back home to what our body is hardwired and ingrained to know, which is like how to feed us, how to try to lead us towards health. Um, We just spend so much time trying to micromanage our body when it knows exactly what to do. Yeah. And then there's also the word diet because, and I've been thinking about this a lot because I know somebody who uh, was diagnosed with prediabetes and they were put on a diet. When you are meeting with clients who have that, how do you discuss that kind of thing. I also would love to know how you even diagnose pre-diabetes. pre-diabetes. Yeah. Yeah. So we look at something called the hemoglobin A1C most often, and that's a three-month blood sugar average. So normal is considered five, six and below, pre-diabetes five, seven to six, four, and diabetes 6.5 and above. The question is, and, and what's been raised is a lot of people who have pre-diabetes never actually go on to develop diabetes. Really? And the goal of someone who has diabetes, the goal blood sugar is actually in the pre-diabetes range. So therefore, you can extrapolate if you're in the pre-diabetes range, you're at no risk, uh-huh. you know, as far as health complications. So the way I look at it is if someone is in that pre-diabetes range, I just monitor their blood sugar you know, every three to six months by getting one of these hemoglobin A1C values. And when I talk about nutrition, whether it's with someone with pre-diabetes or diabetes, I don't talk about restricting or eliminating foods. I talk about adding in foods or yeah. doing what we call mixed meals. So I'm not going to say don't eat carbs. I'm going to say if you have a carb, it's a good idea to pair it up with a protein and a fat and a fiber because by doing that combination of foods, it slows down the absorption of the starch of the glucose, which causes the rise and fall of blood sugars. So talking about it from that standpoint. If you're um, having a pasta, add some spinach. Totally. Yeah. Because- we all know, and as we're discussing here, if you tell someone don't eat something, number one, how sustainable is that, <laughs> you know, mentally and physically and going to a party and, you know, it's the holiday season and, you know, there's all this stuff going on. It takes a big toll on someone to not have those things. And when they do, they're probably going to, you know, go to the other extreme, which mm-hmm. is not healthy either. So just figuring out the balance for the individual um, is the way I approach it. And, and everyone's different. I think it's also important to keep in mind that people with diabetes are at higher risk for eating disorders as well. And, you know, often it is the well-intentioned but harmful advice from doctors to eliminate certain foods from their diet or the idea that people get from the culture that, okay, I have diabetes or even I have prediabetes. I'm responsible for trying to, you know, alleviate this through diet and people can get very restrictive and it can trigger eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you mentioned on a podcast too, that there are a lot of quote unquote success stories where people have changed their bodies and they are much thinner than they originally were. But what 
is that usually? Yeah. Well, one of the studies that I talk about in my book was with the National Weight Control Registry, which is, um, you know, researchers, because it's so difficult to get people to actually lose weight and keep it off in any of the research studies, they started to trying to look at people who were, you know, just kind of doing this out in the world who had lost a significant amount of weight and managed to keep it off for, I think it was like a year or something like that. And what are they doing? Mm -hmm. And they outlined, you know, if you look at it from the researcher's perspective, they outlined these behaviors, you know, that people were doing and kind of like encouraged other people to do them as well. There was a really fascinating uh, paper that came out that's that looked at the behavior behaviors and said, these are actually the behaviors that people with severe and enduring anorexia are mm -hmm. engaging in. And there's a lot of similarities to these people in the National Weight Control Registry and people with severe and enduring anorexia. Now, of course, they didn't go the, the step to actually say that these are people that these people could have anorexia because they're still in a larger body. But we know now right. that anorexia is more common in people with a larger body. So, you know, I think it is likely that many, of course, I can't diagnose anyone without seeing them. But it, if you look at the behaviors, it seems like many of these people likely are struggling with eating disorders. And they're being like, hey, they can do it. Why don't you just get an eating disorder? Yeah, doctors right. are literally telling people to engage in eating disordered behaviors in right. order to but lose But if weight. you're someone who's lost weight, they don't call it anorexia. They call it willpower. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but it, you know, if you're medically underweight, then that's the only time that it presents an issue. It's very twisted and backwards. It really mm -hmm. is. It really is. So we were talking about the holiday season, New Year's coming up. Can you give our listeners some tips for ditching the diet mentality coming into this new year? Yeah. So, you know, I think that one, you know, trying to understand like what is the reality around weight loss. And I think that so many people, it's easy to say like ditch the diet, but what does that really mean? And I think for a lot of people, it has to do with letting go of the fantasy of weight loss and Again, if you're in a larger body and you're living with chronic discrimination, like that's a really difficult thing. It's a difficult thing for any of us because, mm -hmm. you know, but especially for people who are faced with the reality of discrimination to say, you know, this is not going to be the path to everything good in life that we're told that it is. So I think oftentimes like ditching the diet um, has to do with like grief and loss and letting go of those those ideals and that fantasy that like my life is going to be better when I've lost X amount of yeah. weight. Yeah. So I think that's part of it, you know, working towards acceptance. I always tell people accepting your body does not mean you have to like it. Um, so oftentimes we think that, you know, how can I accept my body? Like I'm, I don't want to stay the same. If I accept it, I'm giving up. And it's just completely the opposite because acceptance is about opening our eyes to the reality of what's happening in the here and now. And, you know, we're in the body that we're in, in this moment. And then from there, we can think about like, how can I best care for myself right now in this body? And I think that's, you know, that's where change happens from when we can accept where we are and bring a compassionate stance to ourselves and think mm -hmm. about, you know, from a nurturing perspective, like how can I move forward? Because so many of us are stuck in that place of like self-criticism and just like beating up on ourselves. And that's where we're stuck. Yeah. And a lot of those New Year's resolutions of I'm going to lose weight. Mm -hmm. That's a really tough standard to set for yourself. Yeah, it's going into the the new year with the idea that there's something wrong with you yeah. um, that you need to change. And and it's not it's not even like the fault of the people making the resolutions because it's everywhere you go. I was 
even at gyms, but I was even at the YMCA and there were there were signs about, you know, losing weight in the new year, which I thought was very strange because that's a community organization. But it really is everywhere you go. And it seems like in December and January, they really crank it up. It's like the time of the year when your body needs to be the warmest. Mm -hmm. That's another thing. It's like I have never craved sweets more because I think I'm bulking up for the winter a little Mm -hmm. bit. Time to hibernate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think we're also given so many mixed messages around the holidays, you know, with like this is the time to indulge and, you know, have the guilty indulgences or guilty pleasures and stuff. And then it's like the next moment we're like, lose the weight, restrict, you know, uh, it's literally the diet starts tomorrow mindset. Like Mm -hmm. this is a very tongue in cheek title, but it's like, yeah, binge, binge, binge. And then your life, your new life begins tomorrow. Yeah. It's just waiting for you right there on January 1st. Yeah. Very effective way to sell products, though, yeah. and weight loss plans. No, which gym is like, memberships are like that's way, what it's all about. Like January, the gyms are packed. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and it it pisses me off so much. <laughs> and they give discounts too. Yeah. Like, where are you in December? <laughs> I know. And then by February, <laughs> it's crickets again. Right. It's really nuts. Thank you both for coming on. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you. Where can people find each of you and follow each of you? Um, everything underscore endocrine on Instagram. Great. And I'm at the anti-diet plan on Instagram and my website's drconnison.com. I have some free resources at the antidietplan.com. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Did you guys like doing this together? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be our new thing. <laughs> Only joint podcast. We wish on. we were your daughters too. So we are first and last. <laughs> no one else could invite us. <laughs> um, you guys, that's it for today's episode. Be sure to send your questions to DST at Betches.com to get them answered and follow us at Diet Starts Tomorrow on Instagram. If you like this episode, please write us a review and don't forget to check out our DST merch on shop.betches.com. Rate, review, and subscribe. And of course, follow me at Lubination. Follow me at Remy Casimir and follow both of these two remarkable human beings. And remember, we're always with you through thick and thin. Diet Starts Tomorrow is produced by Rebecca Steinberg and Lauren Hope Crass. Editing by Rebecca Steinberg, social media by Lauren Hope Crass, and guest booking by Allie Friedlander. Be sure to follow Diet Starts Tomorrow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And send us your emails to dst at betches.com or your voicemails to 212-287-5650. Betches.